just want to do God's will. The kind of revolution that the world needs is a Christian revolution. If you want a miracle, you've got to expect it to happen. You are the recipients of God's grace and God's blessings, and you rejoice in that reality. Welcome to Life Today Live. Randy Robinson here. And uh, COVID, I think I can say it, it's over. We, you know, we, we're past that. It was rough. Uh, it cost a lot of people their lives, their livelihoods, uh, caused anxiety and stress, disrupted plans, dis- disrupted a lot of things. And I think the smart thing to do is to look back at COVID and go, hey, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? And unfortunately, I think we did a lot wrong. And at the time, I tried to have a lot of grace towards people, especially, you know, like governors or people with a county or pastors, you know, trying to decide, look, you know, do we do we open our doors, put people at risk? Do we not? So I, I think uh, it, it's a good thing, especially for Christians, to have grace on those who are dealing with it at the time. But I also do think it's healthy to look back. Well, today's author, uh, today's guest, rather, is the co-author of a book called the Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. And uh, I will let him explain that. Feel free to agree or disagree. Chat is open if you're watching us live. Uh, and Jay Richards is my guest today. He's a longtime friend of the ministry, uh, contributor to the stream. He's also a fellow and a director at the Heritage Foundation. So, Jay, great to have you, man. Good to see you. You too, Randy. Thanks. So, Walk us through a little bit of your take, because um, sure. I'll, I'll just be quiet and listen for a bit, and and uh, and then we'll have a discussion. What do you what do you think when you look back on the whole COVID pandemic? I think that almost the entire government response to the uh, pandemic was a catastrophe. That's why it says that in the <laughs> title. Um, I, of course, was one of the early kind of uh, enters into this. A particular view, I, you know, of course, just like everyone else in February, okay, there's a virus seems to have come from China, it's respiratory, it's worrisome, uh, didn't know anything more than anybody else did. And it really was not until uh, I'd say mid or late March that I got worried. I got worried for a couple reasons. First, um, w- there, there was a proposal globally that we respond to a respiratory virus in a way that we have never done before. We know what to do when you've got a contagious disease, whether it's respiratory or it's spread in some other way, is that you quarantine the sick. You don't quarantine everyone. You don't lock everyone up or freeze them. And the reason is because there are such high costs to locking everyone up. That just seems fairly obvious. If you don't let anybody leave the house, uh, people are eventually gonna starve to death at the extreme. So that there's a reason for that. The, the other reason is there's absolutely no evidence that locking everyone up um, the, in the, like the lockdowns actually helps the problem. So the costs are really high and the benefits are at best uncertain. And so I knew that because I knew a little bit about how this stuff had been done in the past. And then something uh, broke in the news and there was a guy named Neil Ferguson, so not the financial historian Neil Ferguson, another Neil Ferguson, who is famous or infamous for developing computer models about contagious diseases and making dire predictions about how many people it was going to kill to always be wrong. He has a 100% record of being wrong about this for 20 years running. He's at the Imperial College London. Uh, And I got word, you know, it was in the news uh, that the model he and a team of, I think, 30 others had developed 
um, had predicted that there was a you know infection fatality rate of 3.4%. Millions of people in the UK were going to die in the next couple of months if they didn't lock down. That model and the results of it had been passed to the Secretary General of the World Health Organization, who passed it on to the public health authorities in the United States. Now, why did I get worried? I got worried because I know something about statistical modeling, and I know that we didn't have any data. So what a model is, is it's a complicated computer uh, system. Just think of it as a kind of program that runs based on a set of assumptions. So you tell it a bunch of stuff, and then it runs through those things that you told it, and then it tells you what's going to happen if the stuff you told it is correct. Yeah. Now, but I knew that he didn't know what the infection fatality rate was. He didn't know how contagious it was. There were all these things that he didn't know. And so we knew that what was being plugged in the model was just sort of made up numbers. And so it was predicting what it was told to predict. And so the idea that a model that was untested, in other words, totally untested assumptions would be used to govern global public health response to a brand new virus seemed to me to just be completely crazy. And fortunately, there were a couple of people I knew that had the same opinion. One was William Briggs, who's a very smart uh, statistician who focuses on medical statistics, and a biologist named Doug Axe. And so all three of us started talking and thought, okay, this is a disaster. Yeah, somebody should probably write a book. In fact, I remember telling Axe, I said, yeah, you should write a book about this. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I have things to do, right? Yeah. Um, and But we started talking about it. We spent some time over the weekend. We ended up writing a proposal for the book, got it to a publisher that we knew. And by April the 1st of 2020, when the lockdowns had just started, we were writing a book that was supposed to kind of do the statistical analysis of whether they actually uh, helped anything. And so at the beginning, of course, we were just writing about why you don't want public health uh, decisions, massive ones to be made based on no evidence. By the time we got working on the book, we actually had data hmm. from the lockdowns themselves. And so in other words, we had, we were watching the case curves, which is, you know, how many cases are going up, how many people are being then tested. So a case in this sense meant someone is positively identified as having the COVID-19 19, uh, an infection from that. And we knew when the knockdowns happened in different states, so we had a date. Um, and then before long, some states started opening up. And so that gave us a way to actually test, did the lockdowns reduce the rate of infection, which is kind of the only question you want to ask if you're trying to think about whether lockdowns make a difference. Um, and so that was, it was a handy experiment. We had different countries locking down in particular dates. We had 50 different states. And we had the case curves. And so if you just remember, everybody was looking at them at the time, but you had these curves where kind of nobody has the virus and then everybody's getting infected. So it goes up exponentially and then it starts to level off, right? And then it kind of peters off. Um, well, if the lockdowns made a difference, that is if they reduced the spread, then you would expect there to be a bend in these curves. You'd see a signature in that curve uh, based on when the lockdowns happened. And when we ran this out, uh, turns out there was no evidence at all that the lockdowns made any difference mm -hmm. whatsoever. You could look at these curves for the states. If you had tried to guess, okay, what day did the lockdown happen in that state? You'd just be guessing because there were just absolutely no evidence <laughs> it helped. And so this confirmed our, our worst fears, which is that this is a bad idea and now we know it's a bad idea. So these were the lockdowns, in other words, all cost, no benefit. 
Jeez. Okay. I remember mm-hmm. the the British guy and his early predictions. And one of the reasons I was skeptical is because I looked at him and his track record and his modeling too. Do you remember? Cause I don't, I remember he said that if we did and he listed all the most extreme measures, yes, lockdowns and all that stuff that, that this many, it meant it translated to the U S population wise that this many millions of people would die. Do you remember that number? I don't remember. Oh, well, it was in the millions in the UK. So he was, of course, he's in the UK. And so it was several million dollars within a few months, or several million people within just a few months if really draconian lockdowns didn't take place. So that was the... That was the key thing. Um, he had twenty something million within a few months in the U.S., and so yeah. they ended yeah. up tweaking this. But it was enormous numbers. It was the kind of numbers that you would expect from, yeah, a, a really, really catastrophic something like the Black Plague or right. something like right. that. That's these numbers. And if you people thought, well, where did he come up with that? Well, he came up with it. He, it was, I think, it was an infection fatality rate of three point four percent, which would have been huge, right. a huge number. Um, and then, of course, it kind of treated as if people were indiscriminately in danger, when in fact, very quickly we realized that this virus, like other respiratory viruses, is very, very risky for uh, elderly people with comorbidities, and then not all that risky for, for young and healthy kids. And so, again, this was just kind of their guess. It was actually, the guess was based on some information about a particular a cruise ship that had, you know, some yeah. kind of rough numbers. I mean, it was just literally right. might as well have been kind of back of a napkin stuff. <laughs> it may well have been. Did yeah. anybody do it right? It, it was there a country did I think was it Sweden or Norway that yeah, did Sweden. Like that? Yeah. Sweden, yeah. And so I did not have this on my prediction for 2020, which is that the country of Sweden would resist the United Nations <laughs> World Health Organization <laughs> and all the official wisdom and say no, this looks like a stupid idea and not do it. Now, they they took precautions. It's not like they just did nothing. That was a, a, a misnomer. But they did not implement these draconian lockdowns like we did. And they very quickly actually opened things up. Now, of course, what the media did was they compared it to a couple of other countries that did lock down, like Norway, in which the deaths seemed to be lower in Norway, and said, okay, aha, see what happened. But they were highly selective. They didn't pick, say, compare it to the UK and Belgium, which they could have, which had draconian lockdowns and worse deaths. And so the media was very selective. And so unless you're kind of statistically sophisticated, you were just bound to be a sitting duck for relentless media propaganda on this stuff. And then the real proof in the pudding is long-term total deaths, right, long over time, right? Because there was no doubt that, of course, people were dying of COVID. The question is that you're going to also have deaths from the lockdowns themselves. You're gonna have all these missed cancer screenings, for right. instance, from not letting people go to the doctors. Right. Um, and so what you want is in a good public health response is a net benefit, right? So in other words, save more people than it kills. You don't want it to be all cost. And unfortunately, in this case, it was all cost and no benefit. Did you uh, look at all at places like Australia or Canada, which were even, you know, more draconian than the U.S.? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, they, of course, Australia had the benefit of being an island country. And so in some ways, if you're going to be, if you're going to lock yourself up from the rest of the world, you can do that if you're an island in the middle of the ocean, right? Um, and so that's a sort of complicated factor. Um, the, the, and the, there's, it's basically scattered, as, as you would expect. And so the, I, the simplest way to put it is there's absolutely no correlation between 
um, lockdowns and sort of safety. So in other words, if the lockdowns had made a difference, another way to test it would be, okay, so we control for population age and population size and population density. And then the countries that locked down the, in the most draconian way should have saved the most lives and th those that didn't should have saved the fewest lives. There's nothing like that. Mm -hmm. There's just absolutely nothing like that. Because And the only way you can really realize that is just by comparing all the countries for which we have data. And of course the book, um, even though it's written for a general audience, is filled with basically everything we had by the middle of summer 2020. Uh, the good news for us was that there was more than enough evidence mm. by that point to show that the lockdowns didn't make a difference. The bad news is that public health authorities weren't listening, and so they kept doing the same stupid stuff for <laughs> as long as they could, yeah. except for places like Florida, Governor DeSantis, and some other states like South Dakota said, okay, after a few weeks, basically, yeah. Um, in the case of DeSantis, for instance, he actually talked to the experts in Europe, talked to people in Italy, found out, okay, this is very risky for elderly people, it's, lockdowns are bad for everybody else, and so he changed the policy. So I have grace and forgiveness for anyone that did that, that said, okay, well, maybe the, we, we acted in a hurry, yeah. now we're going to look at the evidence and we're going to adjust. I, I'm much less inclined to forgive, at least from a policy perspective, leaders who wouldn't bother to do that and to change based upon new evidence coming in. What's sort of the worst reaction you, you saw, whether here or in Canada or, or somewhere else? Well, certainly, um, the probably China, um, <laughs> except that we're, you know, I always rest, um, sit loosely on what they were doing in China, because you never know if they're really telling us the truth. No, but we I, know, I, for instance, even in these yeah, increased, not. yeah, the, these um, increased breakouts, for instance, in Shanghai, where they just basically uh, isolated people. I mean, as well, basically, you know, at home arrest mm. for people. It was mm. absolutely horrific, killing people's pets. I mean, it was just all these kinds of things. And so you'd expect from a, you know, from a police state like China that they would do that. But that, so in some ways I say, well, of course it's China. Um, but what was really frustrating to me was that countries that proclaim themselves to be free, you know, were free democracies. So Australia, for instance, and New Zealand just completely went uh, crazy when it came to this stuff and still mm -hmm. in some cases to this day. Uh, and, and part of that I think is because it was, it almost became, it's like a moral currency so that people or countries or leaders, they, it, it's like they thought that they proved their moral seriousness by how draconian they could be mm -hmm. in response to this. That's really bad public policy, uh, <laughs> you know, to do that. What you want to do with any public policy, especially public health is say, Hey, what are the costs? What are the benefits um, in terms of lives and well, right. overall well-being right. of these different options? And then let's pick that. I, I think one of the most disturbing things that I experienced during COVID, because I mean, I didn't, I didn't lock down. I didn't miss a day of work. I, I stayed out <laughs> of crowds. You know, Texas. I wore a mask if they made me. I live in Texas, right? But I interviewed people not just in mm -hmm. other states, but in other countries, yes, including Canada and Australia during in the height of COVID. And the thing that I noticed is that even Christians were afraid to speak out against their government. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, how, have we done permanent damage in an authoritarian way uh, in, in some mm -hmm. of our countries because yeah. we, I don't know, we were I mean, scared? That's, uh, yeah, because we're scared. I mean, this is what the most terrifying reality of this to me was that um, – just imagine, you know, just play the conspiracy theory and say there's people that would like to control the world, tell us all what to do. Right. They got a key piece of information out of this. And here's the piece of information is that the Americans 
and pretty much everybody else will comply with otherwise ridiculous orders if told it's a public health crisis, yeah. right? So if we were had just been told, well, you just have to do this, I don't know, to save energy or something, or, uh, you know, we would have all rebelled. But because we were told, well, it's a virus and you're, you hate old people if you go out, yeah. right? We immediately almost just in terms of population, we complied with that. That's what was so extraordinary. And I thought, okay, well, this will happen for a few weeks. And then I honestly thought when we were working on the book, well, by June of 2020, people would figure this out because you just can't maintain this level of anxiety and people start realizing, okay, we're not being told everything. But no, I mean, I'm telling you, even you know, in my neighborhood where my wife and I would go walking every day during the lockdowns, we would still go outside. People kept a wide berth, even outside in the middle of the sun, right? Mm -hmm. They would yell at us for not having masks on and everything. And so we internalized our own oppression effectively. Now, I do think now maybe half the population realized what happened, but the other half didn't. So the other half is still panicked and likely to do it again if, you know, if we're called upon. To well, yeah, do it. yeah. I, I, we got one viewer right now who's in Canada who says that uh, they're still scared. Yeah. And I, I've traveled, a, you know, a fair amount. And, and you do, you see some people that still seem really concerned. Now, it's hard to know sometimes mm -hmm. because they may have some sort of respiratory issue. I wear a sure. mask when I'm trimming the, the, the hedges I, yeah. in my yard during right now during allergy season and exactly. i'm always like somebody's gonna drive by and think well what's that idiot doing Look he's not gonna him. get COVID from his yard you know but that's why i had masks when it all hit because it it does yes. help with those giant allergy particles not absolutely so big pollen one. yeah it's great it's great for pollen not so much for a virus did yeah. what do you think about the masks overall because i was i, I was like okay I, i'll wear one if it'll help or if it'll mm -hmm. make someone else feel better but it at times it just felt kind of stupid yeah, it did. I mean, so initially I said, look, if everyone were to properly wear an N95 mask clean and then replace it once a day and keep, keep it sealed around your face, that would probably make a little bit of difference. I mean, I just think mechanistically that makes sense. But when you actually look at the really rigorous studies, there's no evidence that this helps, at least the way that we did it. And that's not surprising. The kind of cloth mask we make, as you implied, you know, they're just not... Uh, they're not tight enough. They're not fine-tuned enough to be able to actually block uh, viral particles or even, even you know, uh, vapor particles that are holding viruses. And so they just don't help and they cause other problems. And so if they're, you know, you've got one of these masks that's not really tight, you're actually creating a jet stream when you breathe it in and so around mm. the edges. And you're also forcing yourself, there's now evidence that breathing more heavily like that, uh, which you have to do if you have a mask on, if you do suck in the virus, you're more likely to breathe it more deeply into your lungs. Oh, and wow. so again, it's just like anything. There are all these kind of complicated factors. It's not just as simple as, oh, bad virus, put barrier in lay, it worked. Yeah, it's just nothing's that that simple. Um, and so that's why, you know, in Asia for decades, what happened is that people would wear masks when they were sick, but it was primarily as a signal to other people to kind of keep their distance. Yeah. Uh, this idea that healthy people are now going to walk around and cover their faces and that there's no downside to that is just extraordinary to me. And what's amazing to me is that I honestly think most people kind of know that, okay, probably doesn't make a difference, but people have gotten used to doing that. And I just think it's kind of like a security blanket. I think yeah. people have just been, they have been affected psychologically and aren't over it. Yeah. Well, okay. And that leads to my next question is what do you think, what do you think the, the, we talk about benefits and risks and damage. Mm -hmm. What do you think was the worst damage of the pandemic? 
Well, probably the in, the internalizing of oppression. Mm-hmm. So whereas it's one thing if you have a, a government that oppresses its people, but the people are at least in solidarity, all realize that they're being oppressed. That's one thing, right? Mm-hmm. The, people have lived through dictatorships for all of human history. But when we internalize that, so we rat out our neighbors, we enforce the oppression upon our neighbors um, and feel good doing it. That in some ways, mm. to me, is the most depressing thing, the most troubling thing, because once you internalize that, it's hard to it's hard to get rid of it. And we know if you read histories of totalitarian governments from Nazi Germany to the Soviet Union, the way totalitarianism works, it's different from you know military dictatorship, which is mere, merely authoritarian. Mm. Totalitarianism requires that the population be a part of the program so that they're ratting out each other they're enforcing it when the police aren't around and that is what's troubling because i think in some ways it's probably the first time many of us had experienced oh that's what it's like in a totalitarian society in which the whole population suddenly turns when there's a social contagion right and to me honestly that was the most worrisome thing and in some ways it was that dynamic that so quickly turned me against it. I think some of us just have something broken in our brains. So we're not, it's like we don't, aren't as attuned to the social signal. So I just sort of resisted it, right? I'm still wondering, okay, but why did most people not do that? And and that's probably the thing that's most troubling. Yeah, yeah, it is. And you know, I, we, we love, everybody throws the Nazi comparisons around like candy. Oh yeah. It gets old. Yeah. To me, however, I do think we can learn something because you mm-hmm. go, how did, how did a country get that way, right? Why would yeah. they follow Hitler? It just seems, in retrospect, it seems crazy. So to me, the most interesting period is the sort of the middle of the 1930s mm. in Germany where you go, okay, what what were they doing mm-hmm. that got them to the point that we got World War II and, you know, the, the Holocaust? Uh, and, and you look at it, and it was a lot of things very similar that we kind of have going on now. And I'm not saying we're Nazi Germany. I'm not saying Biden's Hitler or any of that. Sure. I'm not. Uh, what I'm saying is that when you start to indoctrinate in schools more than you educate, mm-hmm. that's a danger sign. When you yep. start to turn children against their parents. Absolutely. And say you can, you can trust your teacher, but you need to rat out your parents. Mm-hmm. Those are very disturbing signs. And when you start dehumanizing certain people because of their either political beliefs, which is the earlier thing that happened in, in yeah. early Nazi Germany, and then later because of, of their, their culture, ethnicity, even even some of that, the lines were a little blurred. I mean, it, they were. It, there, there's a lot of disturbing things, and the, the whole pandemic, I think, exposed an undercurrent of, uh-oh, this bad things could happen here. Mm-hmm. And we're not that far from it. So here's my question out of all that. If this comes back around Mm -hmm. or when it comes back around, (laughs) what do we do? How do we stop it? So here's why I'll make a prediction. Every emergency from now on is going to be framed in terms of public health. And the reason is because they know that works. And so anybody that wants to control us is going to say, look, this is a, this is for public health and it's you're going to be harming the, the, the weak of society if you do this. And so we need to have discernment for that um, and we need to not comply. We just need to be firm in our resistance because, look, the lockdowns only work if almost everyone complies. It's impossible to enforce 
if you know even 20% of the population just refuses there's it, the whole thing falls apart that's mm. in fact that's what happened in some places and so we just need to remember that and remember how easy it was before and try to learn the lesson because if we don't i mean it will have happened for nothing but if we could say okay now oh, now i'm attuned i i fell for it the first time i was slow waking up but now i'm alert and i'm going to recognize the signs the second time around that would at least there would be some benefit from the first time yeah Polite noncompliance, as polite yes. as possible. Uh, That's right. De definitely. Okay, this is the book. It is called The Price of Panic, available wherever you get books, by Douglas Axe, William Briggs, and our guest, Jay Richards. Uh, and I'll show you this website real quick uh, for Heritage. It is at heritage.org. Uh, so you can see more of the works. I, I know, Jay, you, you've been addressing the whole transgender issue lately. Yes. So. Uh, you got some uh, articles or resources <laughs> up on that right now? Absolutely. I've been focusing on that a lot, actually. And so I just managed to find something more controversial than the COVID stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, good. I like, I like, I always have appreciated the way you approach things, which is very even keeled. You're not some radical out there screaming and you've got data to back up what you're saying. And I, I actually value that because, you know, especially when you don't really know what's going on and you got these oh, yeah. voices over here and you got yep. these authoritarians over here and <laughs> yeah. all the rest of us are in between going, ah, you know, I don't know what to do. Uh, so, no, I, so appreciate that. Anything you want to add before I let you go? No, thanks so much, Randy. I mean, I just, I honestly think um, the most important thing we can do as believers right now in this culture is to pray for and to cultivate uh, the virtue of discernment, because the discernment is absolutely crucial in terms of sort of separating the shaft from the wheat when it comes to these truth claims. No doubt. I mean, that's, that's true in life uh, and really true when things get a little difficult. How awful is the media? Because I got mad at the media more than I think anybody during COVID. It's I know. I'm never. I'm never going back now. I was fully red pilled uh, during COVID, and now it's like I'm sorry. Unless I can verify this independently, I'm just not going to trust it. No joke. Well, there's some great places that people can go. The stream, yep. stream.org, yep. uh, Heritage Foundation, Heritage.org, uh, the Discovery Institute that you're a part yeah. of as well. Discovery. Absolutely. So you just got to find them, uh, and you know, discernment really is the key and you need that which is why you need god in your life and you need to be really tied to that vine because mm. it's a messed up world and if we're not careful we can repeat history let's not do that jay i appreciate you appreciate your time mm -hmm. thank Pre you randy absolutely i appreciate all you guys out there watching hit like hit share hit follow uh and check out the price of panic because we don't need to pay that price again see you again next week on life today live you're the fruit you're the fruit. You're the fruit. Exports. <laughs>